One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Anne-Marie Batson from Five Live and The Voice newspaper, by Molly Hudson of The Times, and by Rich Laverty, the writer and broadcaster who created the Women's Top 100. We've all had a month or so to reflect on the World Cup. In promotional terms, it was a huge success. There'll be a record crowd at Wembley when Germany provide the opposition in November. But how do we judge England in terms of performance? Was reaching the semi-finals a qualified success or a missed opportunity? And how will it shape the new season? What do you think, Amory? This is a tough one for me because of all the press conferences that we've been to, Phil Neville and the team were very, very clear that they, were, you know, they wanted to win the tournament. They've been very vocal about that. They didn't meet the target. But at the same time, the level of interest in the game you know, quadrupled it so much. There was so much excitement around. And the fact that you had 11 million viewers for the semi-final game against the USA, I think just, just showed how much interest there was. So I think it's, no, they didn't hit the target, but it's been offset by the fact about the level of interest from England and around the rest of the UK about watching the World Cup. So I'm in a little bit surprised there hasn't been questions asked about Phil Neville and the target that he had set. But I think that is because there was such goodwill towards the team. And I also feel that there was so much engagement. They've kind of just let that go under the radar a bit, mm. I would say. A couple of games coming up in, in Belgium and Norway. just want to try and look a little bit beyond that, really, Molly. In terms of preparing for the bigger picture, the Olympics is probably the next target. How do you expect the England side to evolve over the course of the season, not just for these two games? I think it was probably the, the first thing we sort of thought about as England went out and obviously after the, the bronze medal match. And we just thought, you know, what's next and how many of these players will we actually see going forward? Because as you say, we've got, we've got the Olympics, we've got the Euros, and then obviously in four years' time, we've got the World Cup. And I think it will definitely be a, a real transition period because you look at some of those key, key players for England, you know, you've Look at Karen Bardsley, goalkeeper, Steph Horton, captain. They're ageing. Jill Scott. I mean, you know, I think for Phil, what his biggest sort of decision will be was, does he bring in all of those young talents, the likes of Beth England, Weef Mannion, you know, so many, Lauren Hemp even, that are really coming through. Does he, does he bring them through now, particularly for these friendlies, or, or does he wait? Does he wait until the season starts, see how everyone's form is? Because, you know, you'd, you'd probably say that Certainly going into that World Cup, there were players that probably on form did better and didn't get in to the squad than some of the ones that did. Um, so I think it, 
it will be a transition period and it will be very interesting to see what sort of timescale we go with that, whether he keeps it, you know, those really key players for the Olympics, the likes of Jill Scott and Steph, um, and how long they can sort of last for, whether that's the Euros or, you know, the World Cup feels a very long, long way away. Doesn't it? Well, what do you think, Rich, about the, the actual depth of talent within the system at the moment? There is depth in terms of, like, the talent of youngsters coming through. I don't think it's endless. I think there's a couple of standouts that will certainly be England internationals in the future. I think Molly mentioned Lauren Hemp. I think Lauren James as well at Manchester United. Um, Aoife Mannion, obviously, I think we all expect to come into the squad eventually. I think there's a few in America as well, players like Alessia Russo and Grace Fisk, and there's a couple out there. And, and there'll be more, you know, down to the under-17s, that there's some really outstanding talents coming through. And it's, as Molly said, how quickly now do you want to start working them in? Because they might be ready in two years, but they might not be ready now. But to get them ready in two years, do you need to bring them in now? You know, it's a no-pressure environment. We've got no competitive games. Um, and actually, for the likes of Aoife Mannion, if you were playing qualifiers against Kazakhstan, where they've got to defend, you know, once in 90 minutes, what do you learn about them? You know, if you bring her in now against Belgium and against Norway and against Germany, they're going to be tested in a sort of no-pressure environment, but they're going to be tested. And I think it's actually the perfect opportunity for them to start bringing those players in. Mm. What about Phil Neville himself, Amory? Because... Yeah, you know, I've been reading. Stan Collymore was basically saying, look, you should go and manage in League One or you should go to Salford City, which is pretty reactionary nonsense, really. But I suppose it does highlight what is his realistic development pathway as a manager and a coach? His contract is up until 2021. And again, he's, again, he's been very vocal about the fact that he wants to do the Olympics, he wants to do the Euros. As a development path, it's a really good question. I think he's going to be really busy over the next few months or so. He's not really going to have a lot of downtime in terms of, I think, before manager, you know, England managers have had big gaps in between internationals, whereas now it just feels like there's a bit of a momentum growing. So for him, as England manager, I think he'll be really keen to see, as these guys have mentioned, all the young players that are coming through the under-17s, the under-19s, and starting that transition period of the players who we think are going to be retiring in the next two years or so, a year or two years, I think that will be his focus. But I noticed that he does seem to comment a lot on men's games as well, doesn't he, Phil Neville? So he still has a f one foot in the men's game as a pundit, but I don't think he'll do that. He won't make that leap for a little while yet. Do you think he'll be at the next World Cup? No. And I think that's, again, something, you know, you sit there at these games and you wonder what's next for the women's game and, you know, what's next for this England team. And as we say, the World Cup does feel a very long time away. And, you know, if he, if he goes on to win the Euros in two years' time, Stan Collymore and, you know, probably a lot more interesting people than that even, <laughs> will be saying, well, look, he's gone and won the Euros with England. Let's get him in a men's team. Because sadly, or, you know, depending on your view of the women's game, that feels as though this is just a step for him. Phil Neville was never going to spend his entire career in women's football. He's gone to the top. He's got the top job in terms of leading the women's national team. Once he does that, the next natural progression is to go back into the men's game. What's difficult to determine is, is where you go. What level does that equate to? Because, you know, you talk about Salford and it's just... It's just would, would that feel like a step down for him? I don't know, because he, talking to us, he, he feels very strongly about the women's game, and I genuinely do think that. I think he is genuine, and he really cares about women's football and its development and growth. But then that can only go so far for him if he wants to progress into the very top of men's football. 
Mm. So I think, you know, it would be very interesting to see how he gets on at the Olympics and the Euros because as a manager, you could argue that how much better this England side than they were under Mark Sampson? How much have they improved defensively? What, you know, there's, there's certain players that would say that Phil's done a lot for them, but what has he actually done in terms of results? I mean, we won the Shubilees Cup. So I think it's quite difficult to determine how well he's actually got on. And I think that will become clear with how he brings through the young talent and how he coaches them and moulds them. And I guess, you know, we'll, we'll see more about Phil because we haven't seen a huge amount of him as a manager, really. You know, she believes and then it was all building up to this massive stage of the World Cup. That's gone, we're out. And now it's sort of like now he gets that time to pick and choose who he wants in his squad. And I think that how he handles that will probably determine where he goes in the long term. Yeah, because it, it begs a lot of questions of succession planning, doesn't it? Rich, because if you look around the system now, who are the coaches of the appropriate stature who would basically present themselves as potential successors? I think the problem is who wants it, because that was the issue last time, and it's whether those coaches and managers will have changed their mind. Obviously, last time, Emma Hayes, Nick Cushing, over in America, Paul Riley, Mark Parsons, John Herdman, Laura Harvey, they all took other jobs or signed new contracts where they were, because at the time... It wasn't a very attractive job for, for coaches within the women's game. There was so much going on with the FA and the way Mark Sampson had left. Maybe in another two years it will have changed and things have settled down and maybe these coaches will want it. Or there might be mm. other coaches, you know, like Tanya Oxtoby at Bristol who's come through, done a really good job, or coaches within the setup already. Um, it'll be interesting. I mean, I agree with Molly. I don't think he'll be there at the next World Cup. I don't think he'll be in women's football. I can't. I just can't see Phil Neville coaching another women's national team or coaching in the WSL. I think the FA really like him. I could see him doing maybe Eddie Boothroy's job in the under-21s or something like that. In terms of succession planning, I think you've always got to. No one stays in a job forever, especially mm. in international football. There's cycles. We've seen it with the USA. Jill Ellis now has decided to walk away because what else is there for her to do? You know, and now they've got to go about obviously finding their next head coach and I think in 2021 we'll be in the same position I think I don't think it has to start yet obviously but I think as we get nearer to the Euros and Phil's contract is coming to an end they've really got to put it out there you know and say look who is interested because you want to get an Emma Hayes a Nick Cushion a Paul Riley someone like that if you're going to hire a British coach obviously or you could go for John Montemuro or someone like that so yeah I think once we get nearer the time that they've got to put a plan in place this time yeah, because I suppose you know the nature of international football is it's stop-start, isn't it? You know, you, you have two games and then you have three months till the next game, which for some coaches just does their head in. But you've also got, to, to your point about the attractiveness of the position, Rich, you've actually got the prospect of 60,000 people at Wembley for the Germany game. Now, that has got to have some sort of attraction to be a figurehead of a programme which is just doing that at the moment. Absolutely. The England manager for the women's national team has evolved since the Mark Sampson days. And however, you know, your view on the appointment of Phil Neville, he's brought a different layer to the manager's job. And yes, I agree with Rich. I think there do, does need to be some, some, some sort of succession planning. And I think it has become more attractive. I'd be really surprised if you get that same round of names not willing to put their faces forward for the job because they've seen the clamour for women's football. They've seen the level of interest in the Lionesses. They'd be mad not to try and put their names forward, mm. I think. Mm. You, may, you, may, you may also get more from the men's game as yeah. well, like mm. Phil. I've seen you know. how well Phil's done. Wayne Rooney yeah. fancies his first coaching job or something <laughs> like that. You never know, do you? So. Oh, the media circus for but, that. Um, yeah. I, I think people will look at Phil and see, you know, 
actually, he's just managed a World Cup final in front of 60,000 fans in, in Lyon. For that's, me, that, that's, that's, better than managing, that's better than <laughs> yeah. managing in League One for me, but yeah. each to their own. Yeah. yeah. Ambition is the bedrock of professional sport, isn't it? And that's not limited to coaches. It's, it obviously applies to players. Steph Houghton is basically saying, look, it's not an issue if we have our best players going abroad to play you know, for Lyon and, and mega clubs like that. Do you agree with that? I think it's a really difficult one. I think I wrote about it two years ago, right at the very start when I first started covering women's football and people like Mary Earps went to Wolfsburg. And I remember speaking to Mary and she was so excited by the prospect of getting out of England and seeing, you know, the great wide world, seeing the culture over there, the, you know, Wolfsburg and Lyon in particular have got amazing facilities for the women's team. They take it really seriously. You know, the wages are very good, probably better than what a lot of the English teams can offer, obviously, with the, the salary cap that is uh, associated with turnover for the women's Super League teams. So that is part of the reason why players go over. I think where it becomes difficult is that you don't want a player to get to a certain point in their development and then think, we have to go abroad to be better. Mm. You look at Lucy Bronze, what more could she have achieved in English domestic football? Nothing. She's gone to Lyon, won everything. Now what does she do? Does she come back and try and win it with, you know, make it harder for herself? Go for a, go for a lower team? You know, what, what more is there for her to achieve in a way? And I think what, what we probably need to do is Keep growing the women's game in this country. And we need to find a team that are willing to invest and willing to do what Leon have done, where they've really supported their women's team and they've gone, we want to be the best women's team in the world and we're going to support that with investment. No English team has got anywhere near that. And they'll all tell you that. They'll all be honest and say, look, we're not willing to put that much money behind it. And until someone does, whether that's Wolfsburg, whether, you know, whether it's Chelsea, Arsenal... Manchester City, even United, because that's something that we looked at when, when they developed and said that actually we're going to back a women's team. You're not going to back it to be mid-table. If you're Manchester United, you want to win. So how, how long do we go on where for those clubs at the top of the division, it's enough to win in England? How long until actually, no, we want to win the Champions League? And once you do that, once you make that statement, once you back the players, you know, whether you bring in some signers from the US or maybe even from Lyon, then you make that step and you make, make English clubs attractive. And you, because now, if you want to win the Champions League, you have to go to Lyon. That, that, that's, the main, that's the main reason why any player goes to Lyon. They know they'll win the Champions League and they know they're around the best players in the world. So until you change that dynamic, it'll just continue. And hopefully, you know, for us as reporters, it's quite irritating that, you know, it's, it's Lyon, they're going to win. What was so lovely last season was how close Chelsea got in the Champions League. Um, so I think, you know... The gap isn't huge, but it just compiles it every single time Leon win. You think, oh, Leon's won again. They've got the best players. Then this summer they go and take all the best English players. They've took Nikita Paris. And it, it does feel like the gap's growing. So I think, it's, you know, we'd all probably say it's time for an English club to go, actually, we want to be the best. We want to beat Leon. Let's invest. Yeah, because if you look at... Well, Alex Greenwood's gone as well, didn't she? You look at the International Champions Cup in, in the US, which on uh, Sunday night finished, Leon won it again. Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's... Um, I mean, look, North Carolina probably have priorities elsewhere than a pre-season tournament because they're mid-season at the moment, whereas Leon are obviously getting ready for their league campaign. I don't think you can read a, a million amount of things into it. It's just a pre-season tournament, isn't it? You know, it's a bit like the men's where it's for the glamour kind of thing. Get a few big teams, go off to America and play a few games. But, yeah, I mean, look, Leon are 
I, I think they're the best team in the world. Mm. I would like to see them go up against one of the US teams like when they're both sort of mid-season, which is almost impossible, but it'd be interesting to see it happen. I hope more teams do do what Leon do, but I hope if it was one of our clubs that it's more than one. Because I don't want our league to become like the French league where Leon win 8 9 nil every single week. You know, the one thing about our league is it generally goes down to either the last day or the day before the last day. We're hindered here a little bit financially compared to teams abroad that don't have any caps that can essentially spend what they want. And I think that's probably why these players are going abroad, you know, and it's why the clubs are coming for English players mm. because they're not on massive wages and... Some people tweet me or send me messages saying, are these players going for the money? And is it because... And I said, well, yeah, they are. But it's completely dif different to going from £100,000 a week to £150,000 a week, where you don't need that extra money. If players are on £50,000, £60,000 a year and Leon are offering them over 100000 plus the ridiculous bonuses they get for winning the Champions League, why would you not take that? Even just for it. People said, why is Alex Greenwood just going for a year? Should probably win three trophies, probably get over a hundred thousand pound bonuses, and then come back. Did you see that coming though about Alex Greenwood going abroad? I'd heard rumours for a while, even back when she was at Liverpool, that Leon wanted her, um, and they definitely wanted a left back this year. But they went for Ericsson first mm. at Chelsea. But they think, you know, teams here they can't resist offers from Leon. People say it's Manchester United. Mm -hmm. They're not as big as Leon in this mm. sport. They're nowhere near as big. They've been around a year. Should that you know, I understand the idea of prudence when you're trying to develop the game from the from the bottom upwards actually, which is what they're doing with with women's football, you know, through the FA. But the, is there a time? Are we reaching the point where you've got to take the the shackles off and maybe drop that salary cap? I think you've got to give clubs more freedom. I mean, you don't want it to become like the men's, where the top three or four just start spending ridiculous amounts of money and they're beating teams six, seven nil every week. But it's how much do you want your teams to succeed in Europe? And at the moment, yes, Chelsea got close. Man City have come close a few times. But they're just not close enough. They've not got the quality to beat a Leon. You look at Leon, and they've got world-class players in almost every position. Our clubs haven't, really. They've got maybe two or three tops. And it'll be hard. Even if you release the salary cap, you can go out and find the best players, but they're all at Leon, And Leon are not going to sell them. So there'd still be work to do, but... Yeah, I think we probably need to loosen the shackles a little bit, but it's the catch-22 situation of making your clubs more competitive in Europe, but maybe making the WSL slightly less competitive. And I don't, I don't think we're at that point yet where I think we need to concentrate on the league and making a strong league first before we think about going any further. But I think eventually it will have to happen. Mm. Were you surprised, Molly, that Tony Duggan opted to go to Atletico Madrid rather than... Maybe the marketing option would be to come back, maybe play for Manchester United even. Did that almost send out a quite a warning signal as well that she didn't make that choice? I think Tony Duggan was an interesting situation because I remember, you know, I know myself and Rich tweeted at the time, it felt like her options were quite limited with the fact that she'd left Barcelona. She'd gone abroad. She probably got slightly more wages than she would have done in England. If she'd have come back, she would have probably lost that. She, she certainly, I remember speaking to her when she moved moved over there and she was so excited about the new challenge, the new way of playing over there and she's really bought into that and she really enjoys that and the way they play and she thinks it suits her. So I think, I mean, her options going back here, you know, there, there was the, the chance of United. I mean, it's very unlikely she would have gone back to City. So that leaves, what, United, Arsenal, Chelsea. 
And when when you're at that stage in the women's game, the, your options are quite limited. And I think she seemed happy in Spain. It's a logical move to go to Atletico. I mean, that's quite com- competitive between Atletico and Barcelona. So I think, yeah, I don't think it was we was overly surprised that she didn't come back because it felt like you know if she had if she had have come back the the options would have been quite limited for her and she has won everything here you know with Man City so it's understandable that she she does want to go out and try there and you know do other things which is understandable and I think in that regard that's not bad for the English team it's just when you constantly get players leaving the WSL that's when it becomes a bit of a problem. Mm. Let's look at the Champions League, Emery. Given that it is the ultimate testing ground, Barcelona are playing Juventus, which is going to be the tie of the last 32. Arsenal, Fiorentina, that's got a nice ring to it. It has, it has. It's, uh, of course, Arsenal back in the Champions League after winning the WSL last season. Uh, they're going to go at it all guns blazing, pardon the pun, I think. It's it's going to be an interesting matchup for sure, just to see what Joe Montemurro is going to be thinking around the team. As far as I'm aware, he hasn't got too many injury concerns at the moment, if I'm right. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys, I don't think. Jordan Nobbs played Jordan at the Nobbs weekend. Jordan Nobbs played at the weekend. Obviously, Daniel Carter's out. But I think he's brought in some new, fresh faces as well from Europe, from European teams. So I think that's going to add a little bit of flavour to it. I'm excited for them, actually. I think it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see how it's going to play out. Mm. City, Lugano, yeah. logically, that's a nice, easy introduction, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think that's there's such a big difference in the Champions League, whether you're seeded or not. And obviously with uh, Arsenal's UEFA coefficient, they wasn't. So actually, to be honest, Fiorentina is probably a pretty favourable draw compared to what they could have got. Um, so I, I don't think Arsenal will be too disappointed with that. I mean, City will, you know, hope to. I mean, they, they had an awful tie last year. If you remember, they got Atletico Madrid mm-hmm. and... Yeah, they was out and it, it felt like they was out for so long while Chelsea were doing both for so long when they when they got to the semi-final. So I think it will, as Anne-Marie said, it'll be really interesting to see how Montemoro copes with the Champions League because for English sides, it seems to be a big thing, the strength and depth. And when you get to the business end of the WSL season, they often seem to really struggle when they've had those extra games. You know, if you're in the FA Cup, the Continental Cup, they really seem to start to build up. And especially, you know, hopefully we're past that now, but there's been a lot of times where there's been pitches that aren't quite up to scratch. They've had games called off in that messy sort of winter period. And it, it, I mean, as we saw with Arsenal last season with all their injuries, they, they wouldn't have had a chance in competing in the Champions League last season. So hopefully now they're, f- f- well, not quite up to full fitness, but... Can't can't possibly be as bad as it was last season. Um, so hopefully the English teams will do well um, and avoid each other as well. Hopefully going forward. A mm. couple of Scottish teams in it, Rich. Uh, Glasgow City have got the Russian champions. Uh, Hibs have got Slavia pa- uh, Slavia Prague. Um, on Sunday, Celtic, uh, sorry, um, uh, Glasgow City beat Hibs. A one nil. Looks like they're going to win the Scottish title for the thirteenth time on the bounce. Um, if we're looking at the bigger picture of British women's football, and you know, there's some talk of you know Cardiff now maybe going in, being viable in a in a an expanded WSL. Do you think Glasgow City or one of those bigger Scottish clubs could go into the WSL maybe next season, season after next? Oh, I don't know whether I'd have anything against it, particularly if they were competitive at this level. But someone asked me about that the other day, actually. But I, it's different because obviously Cardiff in men's and women's obviously are in the English league system. Glasgow and Hibs and everyone else aren't. 
So I don't really know how logistically it would work, whether the FA would allow it or, you know, I think the FA are quite big on obviously promoting their own clubs at the moment through licensing and I don't know whether a Glasgow or a Hibs would slot in. I think you're right, obviously the Scottish League, not the most competitive because there is only one or two clubs that really push it. Rangers have started to push it this year a little bit. Um, yeah, it's difficult because you don't want to hinder them. You sort of think, well, how much further can Glasgow go in that league to help them go further in Europe? Um, I think it'd be something maybe that's looked at, but there's been murmurs about this before, you know, in, in the women's game and in the men's game, and it's never happened. And I don't, I don't really see it happening. Like, obviously, if Cardiff come up, fair enough, because they're in our, our league system. But I've, I can't even imagine the sort of logistics that have to go on between the two FAs when you think about the argument that's going on with the Olympics. Never yeah. mind the league. So, um, would the Scottish FA be thrilled if their top women's team came down Slightly into the up. English leagues? I can't see it happening. Yeah. I wouldn't be against it, personally, but I can't see it happening. OK, can I look at another broader issue, um, Amory, around refereeing? Mm. I think by common consensus, Stephanie Crapar was brilliant, brilliant and her team were brilliant in the, in the Super Cup, which I think was a big symbolic moment. What about the standard of refereeing in the English game, the women's game? And I'm thinking particularly of some of the sort of, you know, the lower tier male referees that you, you can get in the, in the women's game who don't understand it perhaps, as intuitively as maybe a, a female official would? Well, that's a tough question um, to answer. I, I don't know. <laughs> that's How long a really, have you got? Yeah, yeah. That's a, oh, goodness, that's a really, really tough question. Do you think we need to... Uh, OK, I'll simplify it. Do you okay. think we need to develop more female referees in this country? I think we need to develop referees right across the board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's my short answer to that. I don't know what you guys might want to chip in a bit more. But I think, yeah, I mean, look, refereeing in the WSL and the Championship has been a talking point for a long time because yeah. it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. um, I think at the top level, I think at the World Cup, we saw some really good refereeing and that includes, obviously, Stephanie Frappard. But, yeah, in the WSL, I, I think... I don't think they treat it as the same sport. I, I really don't. I mean, how many red cards do you see in the WSL? You might get two, three a season. Mm. You get two or three a week in the Premier League. And I just don't think... You see some challenges and you just think, well, that's a booking straight away, and nothing happens. Mm. And, you know, I think it was the... The Drew Spence one on was it Kim Little yeah. last season? We were all we were in the press box. And it was we? a we it was like, a clear red what? card and nothing yeah, even nothing happened. happened. And I just think they they look at it and think, well, it's women's football. It can't be that brutal. It can't be you know too many hefty challenges. When they happen, it's almost like they're surprised by it. Mm. And I think we need to treat it like the men's game. If there's a bad tackle and it's a red card, it's a red card. And we just don't. I don't. I don't want to condone seeing red cards every week, but. No, I think in the history of the WSL, I'd be amazed there's been more than 10, 11 red cards. We've been going eight years. I think what's difficult is you look at somebody like Stephanie Frappard and some of the people that were a bit negative towards her were saying, well, she's a woman, women's football's slower, will she be able to keep up with the speed of play? So the argument there is, instead of saying, well, all of these Premier League men's refs, why can't we have them in WSL? Let's not aim for that because that's never going to happen, in my opinion. But... Why, why don't you say, you know, you don't have to be a man or a woman to officiate in either? If you, if you want to be a referee, be a referee. If you want to be a women's football referee, then be a women's football referee. There's nothing to stop you not being the best women's football referee you can possibly be. And I think it, it feels as though there's a, there's a probably, oh, I don't know whether I'm right in saying this, there's a clearer pathway for women in women's football than there is for women in 
in the Premier League because you you look at our top official Rebecca Welsh in the National League, um, Stacey Pearson who retired from Yeovil Town as a women's player to go into refereeing. I think she's in tier three uh, of refereeing. So it's you know we are a very long way away, in my opinion, from having a a female Premier League referee, someone like Frappar, who has done so well in Europe. I don't think we're near that in this country and I think we need to do better to, to achieve that, really. Mm. OK, the, the, I suppose the undercurrent of that question was, was equality. Now, we, look, we, we think about equal pay, Megan Rapinoe and the Americans have, have been right on the front foot on that issue. Um, you know, we'll get now to talk about the championship, which launched on Sunday. Um, Lewis, you know, very good 5-1 win over Blackburn. Um, I just want to look at their model more than anything else. 100% community ownership. You can be you pay 40 quid and you you're, you're a member. Um, men and women's team equal facilities, equal money, and it's not for profit. Now that seems to me a brilliant model, but is it realistic in terms of progress? I think it's. It's an alternative, it's an option, because we've seen what happens when the money runs out and clubs literally fold overnight and players are out of are out of jobs. And they you know, we've seen that particularly up in the northeast, haven't we? Clubs have literally just disappeared like that. There has to be another way and I and I like the fact that Lewis has put another option on the table. You know, I'm gonna give it a lot of hope and say, Yeah, I think it is sustainable. The community side of it, everybody's equal, everybody's on the same page, everybody wants the, the club to do really, really well. So they will work hard to make sure that the club does really really well and maybe other clubs need to look at that as a as a potential model because what's the other option somebody coming in with a lot of money passing some sort of test in inverted commas and then the money runs out and people are out of jobs next day unless the league can think of another way for club ownership i think it's a good model to follow Mm. you've been looking at the ownership at london city in the championship was a bit opaque for a while Uh, now it seems that they're supported by some form of a financial technology company. Um, you know, you saw the, the weekend, they began with a 2-0 win over the London Bees. Um, it's a strange situation, looking at it from an outsider's point of view. You know, Millwall were there, supposedly a viable club, now suddenly they're not there and it's a new club. Can you give me some background to that, please, Molly? I think Millwall have had quite publicised issues with finance in, in recent years and that resulted in them having quite a weak squad, a lot of younger players, and they really struggled last season. Um, so essentially, this this new company, they sponsored Millwall in 2018-19. Um, they're called SETL, and they do a lot of technology in London. Um, they've been based in London for quite a number of years now. They sponsored Millwall, and then at the end of last season, they decided we want to run this new club called London City Lionesses. Now, that has taken quite a few Millwall players. It's also taken some younger players from various clubs. It's taken Poppy Wilson, who come from Bristol City, Elizabeth Adupi, who come from, well, she was at Aston Villa, Charlton. So they've got quite a mix of players. I think what is actually really interesting is, yes, they've they've gone full-time. Clearly, it's a lot of investment. It's massive for the championship. Mm. All of are the they players, the only full-time club? I think they are, aren't they? Pretty in much. terms of across the board, yeah. yes. And I think what's interesting is they haven't done what Manchester United did and taken, you know, loads of WSL players and sort of ran before they could walk almost. I mean, it's worked for Manchester United because they had that such big club and big branding behind it. But what London City have done is they've taken players and transformed them into this full-time model. So pretty much the majority, like probably 90% of the squad were part-time last season. 
So they've transformed them into full-time players and that's its own, you know, has its own difficulties with, you know, jobs. They've, some of them have given up full-time jobs in finance um, and various other things to actually move to this club. And I think that was really interesting speaking to Chris Phillips. We went down to Dartford, which is where they play. And he was saying, this is a format that shows we don't have to be the annoying sister of a men's club. And I think that's really interesting because what you have probably seen is, as Emery said, the, the clubs that have fell down in recent years, they've probably relied a lot on the men's side. And there's always that ability to just cut the money. You know, when, it, when it's difficult for the men's team, the first thing that goes is the youth, it's the women's teams. So if this is sustainable, it could be the new way of doing things. They've got their own Nike kit. So Nike are obviously big supporters of this. They must believe it's successful. I don't think, you know, I don't think fans should expect London City to go and walk the league. It's not going to be like that because, yes, they are professional, but they haven't got, you know, the huge star names. But they're really building something and it feels like it's something that will grow and is actually sustainable. It feels like it's been done the proper way. But you have got your usual problems with it being in Dartford when it's called London City Lionesses. Mm. And Lionesses as well, I'm, I'm not feeling that at all. Well, they, that was to build, build on the World Cup, Yeah, they suggested. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, that is an issue, being in Dartford. How do you build your fan base? Mm. How, how important is identity, Rich? You know, you're associated with Sheffield United, which is a, you know, a very proud club. You look to see what's happened with, you know, with the men's side, fantastic interaction between fans and team and club. How do you try and replicate that in the women's game? I can't speak for every club. I mean, we have a very open sort of dialogue on the media side with the men. We've got marketing people on the men's side that are very heavily involved with the women's team. Plus then myself, obviously, and the academy and the, the first team and the women, they all train at the same base. They've got two separate buildings. The first team are in one the academy and the women are in the other, but all the staff are in the same offices, the, the media guys, the marketing guys, you know, everyone works together. I obviously don't see it on a daily basis, but I think for us it, it works. I can't speak for the other clubs that are Premier League teams in our league, Leicester, Crystal Palace, teams like that, but I think it helps being a name almost, you know, Sheffield United now being a Premier League club, we've been able to attract some good players this summer, you know, on the women's side that have walked through the door, you know, seen the academy, seen the facilities, seen the fact that we share everything. You know, they can come in when they want. You know, they are part-time, but they can come in if they want to. They can use the gym, they can use the facilities. We've got three players who actually work at the training ground um, during the day and then they just train in the evening. So I think for us at the moment, it's working. We've had a solid first season. Obviously not the start we wanted on, on Sunday, but we've got a lot of talent in the team and I think... Again, yeah, I can't speak for the others, but I'm not saying London City won't work. You know, I think if more teams could do that and it worked long term, it's great. But I think for us, I don't think we feel like the annoying sister, um, <laughs> as Chris Phillips put it. Maybe we will, I don't know, but um, it doesn't feel like that to us. Yeah, I don't want to intrude on private grief, but a few words about that first game of the season. 2-0 up and then you get Mel Johnson scoring a hat-trick for Aston Villa against you. That can't have been a brilliant Sunday. It was a really strange game because probably both of them were bigged up as kind of favourites for the, the title almost because of the fact they both ended last season. You know, we ended it with seven wins in a row and Aston Villa's improvement throughout the season was, you know, from going 12-0 to Man United to where they were at the end of the season was unbelievable. But actually both clubs had so many new players. You know, I think Aston Villa had six new players out at one stage of the game we had seven that started and an eighth came on so 
and you could kind of see it. Like even though it was three two, we had a three three against them last season, and it was a brilliant game. It wasn't on Sunday. Like it was really chaotic. Neither team really settled. Everyone looked a bit nervous. And the first 20, 25 minutes, Sheffield United were brilliant. Yeah, absolutely killed them on the counter-attack. And Gemma Davis said that after they tweaked it a little bit and we probably didn't deal with it as well as we could have done. But yeah, it was just odd. It just felt like a classic sort of opening day game where there's so many new players, quite a lot of nerves. And it just worked out for them, obviously, better in the end than it worked out for us. But I don't think Carla Ward was worried. Like, you know, she said after the game... If we'd lost 3-2 and played as well as we could, we'd be a little bit worried because obviously we're not there. We went there last year, lost 5-1, not playing well. This year we lost 3-2, not playing well. And no, we could have played so much better. We've still got one more player to come in. We've got a couple of players, key players out injured. Our top scorer from last season was injured. So, yeah, we're not too worried. It's disappointing. But like I said, there's a lot of talent in that team that's come out of the WSL from last season. So... Yeah, we're quite excited still about where the team's going. Mm. Charlton are the odd, odd team out. They play Lewis in their opener next Sunday. Mm. Um, Charlton and Durham, you know, third and fourth last season, do you expect them to have a run at it as well? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. I fully expect Charlton to have a run of it. Like you said, they finished third last season. I think there were five points behind Spurs so there'll be a lot of lessons learned from that of how they can claw that back for this season I'm, I'm and I I like their manager a lot he's quite refreshing in his approach I mean despite the chaotic scenes that are going around the club itself are they insulated from that I think I think they are to the extent of it, it doesn't seem to be affecting them on the play and they're not getting the negativity and, you know, the, rightly so, that their club is getting a lot of negativity. That's a story for another day. But the women's team itself, you know, I, I watched them when they played Arsenal in the Conti Cup at season or season before and they, you know, they really took it to Arsenal. So I'm excited to see where Charleston are going to go and I like the fact that they're just blocking out all the noise of what's going on with the club. You know, finishing third isn't something to be sniffed at. So, yeah, I reckon they'll go for it. And what about the general standards, Molly, in the Championship? What sort of level is it at and can it improve or has it improved? I think it's definitely growing. I think, you know, there's... We talk about London City being professional. Then, you know, you've got clubs like Aston Villa that have really invested. I think Durham have invested a fair bit this season. Um, so it's growing. I think what's difficult is for a lot of the players, they are working full-time jobs elsewhere. And what's difficult is, you know, when you, you come home from work, rush into training two, three times a week. You know, as Rich says, clubs like Sheffield United are having to deal with that. There's ways around that. There's, you know, employing people within the club and, you know, there's trying to deal with that the best you can, but ultimately it's still there. And I think what we've talked about a lot is the Continental Cup and how difficult it is for teams like Sheffield and, you know, pretty much everyone in the division to compete with the WSL teams because there is that gap there between part-time and full-time and it is a big thing. I mean, you, you talk about London City, the biggest thing for them, in my opinion, that really, really should be praised is the fact that all of their players have got private medical insurance. That's such a big thing when you think about how big a problem ACL injuries are in women's football. You know, these players that are part-time, they're, they're having to miss time of work, they're waiting months and months for operations, you know, there was crowdfunding pages last year just to, just to get consultants to see them and, you know, stuff like that is always going to hold back the championship until it becomes full-time, until everyone has that support and I think we're quite a long way off that at the moment. Mm. But it, it's just a question of growth, isn't it? Incremental growth, Rich. You must see that around you. Yeah, uh, 
I've wrestled with it probably since Man United came in, to be honest, about what's right and wrong in the Championship because there was such a big deal made of it that when it was restructured, we had a full-time league and a part-time league. And then Man United came in, blew everyone away, went full-time, and we all sort of said, well, hang on a minute, what's, what's going on here? We were told it was a part-time league. Obviously, this year, whether teams have done it off the back of Man United, I don't know, but Villa, London City, Durham, again, have invested a lot. It's unfair in one respect because it, it gives other teams a bit of a handicap that are still part-time, but you, you don't want to restrict players from getting what Molly's just said. You don't want to stop players getting a full-time wage. You don't want to stop them getting private medical insurance. And then people will say, well, should the whole league be full-time? You know, the Championship and the WSL. I would like to think it can be, but then you're going to have the same issue we've had every summer where some teams will say, well, that's not for us, you know, and then... It all kicks off again, fans kick up about clubs being demoted, and, but without significant investment, I don't see how you can have both. Mm. You want the best for the players, but how do you do that without losing more clubs? And then do you turn around and say, well, look, if these clubs can't do it, we'll keep the clubs around, but then you're hindering the players. You're saying to the players, sorry, you're going to have to stay part-time because we want to keep these clubs around. And without big investment, I don't see how the whole league could be full-time I don't see how we can benefit players and clubs at the same time okay let's finish uh, if, if we may uh, right at the sort of summit of the game as it were UEFA have got their three players of the year selected Lucy Bronze and her Lyon teammates Ada Hegerberg and uh, Amandine Henri uh, Lucy Bronze going to win it oh so tough this is this is really hard I can't split between the three because they're you know they're they're unique in their own way, but they bring something different to the table. It's so hard just for me to try and work out who would I go for if I was asked that question. And I'm still struggling with it, which is why I'm stretching out my answer. <laughs> um, they're fantastic players, that is for sure. And as I said, they bring different things to the table. You know, Lucy Bronze is, you know, won everything at Lyon. She's a fantastic right back, as we know. Amadine Henri, been professional since she was 14 pretty much was the face of French football during the Women's World Cup. You know, had the, all that pressure on her shoulders because we know that the French weren't necessarily behind the, you know, the French team and then did get behind them at the World Cup. And then Hegerberg is a trailblazer. Mm. I can't call it, to be honest. If, if you were to really push me, Mike, I, I'd actually go for Amadine Henri. Yeah. I think Anne-Marie could be right there. I think it might work against Hegerberg, the fact that she wasn't in the World Cup I know it's UEFA and it's not it's not like the FIFA best player but I think it in the back of your mind it does it feels like it plays a part doesn't it mm. you know how how integral Lucy was for England I mean she was amazing and I think it has to play a part and you know Amandine Henri she's been there or thereabouts for so long I think mm. she probably deserves it mm. but as Phil says isn't, isn't Lucy Bronze the best player in the world <laughs> uh it's not an opinion I share. She's up there. <laughs> she's the best right back in the world. Um, she's one of the best defenders in the world. I think over the course of the 12 months, Hegerberg would possibly be third for me out of those three. But to be blunt, it's a UEFA award and she's got a hat trick in the Champions League final. So Hegerberg will win. There isn't a question about that. If she doesn't, I'll be amazed. Right. Well, Leon dominate again. I suppose the challenge now is to keep the next generation of England players in our own Super League. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 